Uh, We're going to be reading tonight from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 3, so I invite you to turn there uh, with me. Uh, We are in that portion of the Gospel of Matthew where we are and have been introduced to John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, and uh, we're going to carry on in our uh, uh, seeking to understand this portion of Scripture. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 12 tonight, Uh, but I'll read again verses 1 down through verse 12, and uh, this is the word of the Lord. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. They were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that when we come to the scripture and when we open the Bible that we are not alone, but that as we read these pages that the Holy Spirit who inspired these words reads with us. And so Lord, we pray tonight that as your word is proclaimed that your Holy Spirit would again help us to know the truth as it is in Jesus, to hear the truth, that you would give us faith to believe and then give us faith and trust to live what we believe in the days to come. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, have you ever tried uh, to go in two directions at the same time? Ever try to go in two directions at the same time? Have you ever tried to travel north um, and south at the same time? East and west, up and down at the same time. Ah, it doesn't work. And uh, in fact, our minds boggle at the thought. In fact, when you think about going in two directions at the same time, you might think about ancient medieval practices of torture like being drawn and quartered, that is, tied to a horse, drawn to the gallows in the middle of the city square, and then the quartering would be having each of your four limbs tied by a rope to a different horse, and all four horses pulling your body in opposite directions. Right? That was being drawn and quartered. Um, there is great pain, in other words, in going in several directions at the same time. In fact, you will either be destroyed, or one direction wins out. 
And so it is uh, in the Christian life. John the Baptist, we were introduced last week, is graciously called by God and sent by God by, uh, to be a herald of King Jesus. Uh, it's time to prepare the way of the Lord, and the hearts and minds of men need to be turned away from sin and turned towards the coming Lord and Savior. You can't be turned in two directions at the same time. Jesus is coming, and so the message of repentance is there has to be a change of mind, a turning of mind and heart away from sin to the coming one, uh, to the coming king. And remember, of course, his name is Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Hopefully last time you remember that we uh, learned that repentance and faith in the Bible are just two sides of the same coin. They can be distinguished, uh, but they cannot be separated. So Paul said of his own ministry, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, in other words, everywhere, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, to everybody, of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. These always go together. In Hebrews 6, where God's people are encouraged to grow to maturity in their faith, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, says the author of Hebrews, and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. That's important, right? Hebrews 6 says the very foundation of your faith, it's elementary doctrine, it's important doctrine, it's a doctrine that needs to be repeated, but it should be what lies at the foundation, and that foundation is repentance and faith. Repentance uh, toward God, repentance for sin, turning to Christ uh, in faith. That's the foundation. So if we get that wrong, if something's missing there, right, in the foundation, The whole structure of our life is bound to collapse uh, because it's built on sand, right? The foundation of the Christian faith, repentance and faith. We hear it from John. First of all, tonight in this passage, we want to consider those who are called to repent. Those who are called to repent. Well, John came preaching repentance, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, We learned last time that's the same message the apostles had in Mark 6. Uh, Same message as Peter, same message as Paul, uh, same message as Jesus. Luke 5.32, Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Uh, Jesus said, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance in Luke 15. Luke 24, as Jesus commissions the church, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. This is the commission of the church to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins everywhere. Paul said this in Acts 26, but declared first, as he's looking back in his life, this is what I did. I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. 2 Corinthians 7, Paul will say, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so the message of repentance is found uh, throughout the scripture. It's a message for all. And as we read last time, verse 5, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan uh, were going out to him. Now, it's important for us to note here, of course, that those coming to John are the Jews. When people come from Jerusalem and Judea and around the Jordan. Primarily, we need to be thinking about the Jews, 
These are the covenant people of God. No doubt there would have been Gentiles who came to John too, and John would have, would have baptized to them too. But the folks who are coming and the folks who are receiving this message, including the Gentiles, are also the Jews. That is also the covenant people uh, of God. Now, as they're being called to repentance and to receive this baptism, we remember that the, the Jewish folks in the Old, old Covenant, they had, they had a form of baptism. It was called proselyte baptism. When there was a Gentile who wanted to identify with the God of the Hebrews, uh, he could be welcomed into the Jewish religion. But he would need to undergo what was called a proselyte baptism. It was a once-for-all thing. A once-for-all legal kind of reception into the fellowship of, of Judaism. But here you have uh, John preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, uh, calling folks to be uh, baptized, submit themselves to baptism. But the wonder here is not that there is a baptism. The Jews were used to some kind of water. They were used to ceremonial washings, but also proselyte baptism. But the wonder here, of course, is that uh, such a fundamental, writes one, a fundamental transformation in its sign and seal were required not only as in proselyte baptism of Gentiles who adopted the Jewish religion, but even of the children of Abraham. They too were filthy. They too must acknowledge this openly. They too must undergo a basic turnabout in mind and heart. And so this is the amazing thing about this uh, call that goes out to repentance. It's not just for the Gentiles. It is meant for the Jews as well. Covenant people of God. So that's the first thing. The message of repentance is for all. All must turn. This is the message that goes out from Jesus. It goes out from the church. The message of repentance is for the covenant people of God too. All must turn. Uh, yes, as God's covenant people, we have all the blessings, just like the Israelites did. We have the word. We have the ministry. Uh, we have all the blessings of being brought up in a Christian home, perhaps. Going to Sunday school. Attending a Bible study. A place of worship. You've got a pastor. You've got elders. You've got deacons who seek to care for you. We have a fellowship team. We've got a family care team. We've got blessing upon blessing that the non-Christian does not have. And what of all these evident kindnesses of God? Uh, well, uh, in Romans 2, 4, the Lord says that he poured out his kindnesses upon his people Israel, uh, not that they would take them for granted, but that it would lead them to repentance, that is to turn away from sin and a turning to Christ. So that's the first thing. This message of repentance is meant for all. But secondly, this passage tonight reminds us of the sin of presumption, that is, the thought uh, that we need no repentance. So the call is to all, including the covenant people of God. But there is such a thing as the sin of presumption, that is, the thought that we or I do not need to repent at all. Notice what verse 7 says. But when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now here we're brought face to face with a sin and a reality uh, that has plagued the covenant people of God uh, throughout history. Uh, that is the presumption that we ourselves do not need to repent at all. 
Uh, We quoted from Jeremiah this morning. Hear another word from Jeremiah 7 tonight. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word. So he's in the midst of the Lord's house and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. So all you covenant folks who come in to worship every Lord's day, God says to Jeremiah, you need to speak this to them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust, says the Lord through Jeremiah, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Uh, the idea here is the Lord calls Jeremiah to stand in the place of worship and uh, saying to the folks, don't uh, say to yourselves, um, you know, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, and it doesn't matter uh, how we're living whatsoever. Don't presume, Jeremiah was to tell the people, the covenant people, don't presume upon the grace of God. You too, the Lord says, to us, you, you have to repent, you have to amend your ways, you have to turn from sin, and not simply call out that you're in the temple of the Lord. Do not presume on the grace of God. Do not presume that all is well, simply because you are in the temple. So who were these Pharisees and Sadducees coming to John's baptism? Well, Pharisees uh, are the successors, uh, many believe, of the Hasidim. Uh, They are known as the pious ones. They're known as saints. Uh, They were a group arising a couple centuries before Christ. They were generally opposed to Greek culture and customs. uh, Their name meant separatist, Pharisee. That is, they were separate from culture. They, as we see in the Gospels, they also saw themselves as separate from sinners, as if they weren't sinners themselves. They were also separating themselves from the multitude who didn't know the law. You'll see in the Gospels, they're often looking down on people uh, who aren't as smart as they. They're orthodox in their teaching, but after, uh, after, uh, after, after uh, the, we read in the Gospels many passages, we find that though they were orthodox in much of what they said, they were really adding their own teaching to the word of God. And in fact, Jesus says to them at one time, you have made God's word of no effect by your tradition. And uh, we're also told they love to be seen by men. Uh, we could call these folks maybe uh, modern day conservatives. Concerned about orthodoxy uh, was their main concern. There were also the Sadducees. Uh, They were known really in that day by others as the compromisers. They were friendly to Greek culture. They were usually the high priests uh, belonged to the Sadducees. Uh, Possibly they derived their name from Zadok, the high priest under Solomon, the Sadducees. They denied the resurrection of the body. They denied the existence of angels. Uh, You might remember Paul when he gets in trouble in the book of Acts, um, brings up the resurrection and the Pharisees and Sadducees start going at it there in the book of Acts, because they denied it. Uh, According to the historian Josephus, they also denied the immortality of the soul. So these guys were were liberals. Um, These folks did not believe in in many of the orthodox teachings, for instance, that the Pharisees did. So they're pretty different. Well, the Bible makes pretty clear that despite their disagreements, conservative or liberal, they were united in opposition to Jesus. And one time Jesus said, beware and watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
And then the disciples say, what, do they got some kind of bad bread we got to be aware of? Uh, No, Jesus says. Uh, It's their teaching, both of them. Beware of their leaven. Don't let it get into your heart and life. They were united in self-righteousness. They were united in the thought that their own efforts, somehow, uh, they could work their way to heaven. And the emphasis was on outward conformity and neglecting the heart of the law, that is, love to God and love to neighbor. So this common emphasis on outward, external appearances. The Bible says they were coming to his baptism. Why? In fact, it actually says when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees not just coming to his baptism, it actually says coming for his baptism. That's what the word means there. They were coming to be baptized by John. Why uh, would that be the case? That is, you know, as the religious leaders of the day, uh, certainly they were not going to be left out of this religious ritual. After all, the people, we find out later in the Gospels, believed John to be a prophet. And so these religious leaders had to be part of it. But there's a problem, that as they come for John's baptism, John, as a prophet of God, knows that these men are not coming with a heart of repentance. So yes, they want to participate in the outward ritual and ceremony. Remember, they were all big on that. But like Jesus who had followed John, John knew by the Spirit that these men were filled with dead men's bones, as Jesus would describe it later. With their lips they praised God, but their hearts were far from him. They didn't actually believe. They were sinners. They believed they were righteous. They did not believe they needed to turn away from anything. They thought they were just fine the way they are. But yet the Bible says they came. They came too for baptism. But they thought they were just fine. In many ways, I'm, uh, I'm reminded of our current cultural climate where it seems almost every movie I have seen recently includes some kind of dialogue. I don't know if you can relate to this, but every movie I've seen recently concludes, it has some kind of dialogue um, that goes like this. It doesn't matter what others think. You just need to be you. Be true uh, to yourself. Let the person inside you uh, come out. Don't be concerned about what others think. And increasingly, there's no sign of God, of course, or religion in movies today, unless it's the religion of atheistic humanism. You know, man's the only one around. Just, Just be yourself. So, for instance, I was reading a plugged-in review of the 2020 Pixar family comedy Turning Red. This is for little kids. Uh, M-E-I is this girl's name. Mai, I think it is. She's a 13-year-old girl, we hear, of Chinese descent and Canadian citizenship. Woo! Canadian. Has the ability to transform into a gigantic red panda. The problem is the panda comes out when emotions run high. This is the storyline. The movie begins with the understanding that personal freedom and autonomy, or being a law to yourself, inherently needs to be balanced with the needs of family and community. I am my own person, she says at the beginning of the movie, but she says that doesn't mean doing whatever I want. Like most adults, I have responsibilities. Now, that sounds kind of good. The review goes on. But instead of growing into that kind of mature understanding as we get older, we've got responsibilities, can't just do what we want, the film suggests that concern about balancing doing whatever we want with our responsibility to others is something we should grow out of, right? So instead of 
uh, you know, she's, at first in the movie she says, uh, you know, I'm my own person, but I've got responsibilities. The whole point of the movie is to get beyond that. Don't worry about those responsibilities. Just, you just need to... At one point, Mai shouts at her mother this, I like boys, I like loud music, I like gyrating, I'm 13, deal with it. And instead of being seen as a sinful expression of self, this is understood in the film as a declaration of emancipation. Mai telling her mom that she was done following her rules. In fact, Mai even uses a spin on a pro-choice slogan that's chilling for a couple of reasons, this reviewer says. She uses this saying, My panda... My choice. Well, if this is what our children are being fed, and what you or I and I are being fed through the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it's no wonder we presume that we do not need to repent of anything, and we will not be judged for anything. I just need to be affirmed by you, and whatever I do, just affirm me. And I just need to be myself, whatever that self happens to be. And your role is to say, okay, that sounds good. It's all good, you see. But the gospel says, it's not. It's not all good. What was the problem for these religious leaders? They were saying, we find out, we have Abraham for our father. John knew this. They were saying things like, do you know who our parents are? Do you know our heritage? Do you know in what kind of family we were raised? Do you know what nation we live in? This is Christian America, after all, where everyone is a Christian. I may not go to church, or I might go to church, but that doesn't really matter. I'm religious. That's my history. Don't you know this country was founded by Christians, and that makes me Christian? Don't you know? Um, Or my parents were Christian. They taught me about the Bible. My dad prayed after meals. Uh, My dad was a pastor, even. My parents took me, okay, sometimes dragged me to church, but I went to Sunday school. I learned the Gettysburg Address. I know the Ten Commandments. There was prayer in school when I grew up. I have a Bible on my shelf, several Bibles in my home. I go to church, maybe not twice on the Lord's Day, but, oh, yes, I do. I go twice on the Lord's Day. I don't cheat. I don't curse. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I'm as moral and clean and upright and flag-waving as anybody. What do I need to repent of? And yet it seems they came. Still. Well, John has strong words by the Spirit. You brood of vipers. Brood means offspring. Mm-hmm. Bold in the Lord. Offspring of vipers means descendants of snakes. Have you ever seen the first Indiana Jones where Harrison Ford falls into the ancient tomb filled with snakes? who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. That is, John says to them by the Spirit, what is prompting you to think that you can avoid God's wrath in the current state of mind and heart that you are in? Who told you this baptism was for you? That is, the unrepentant. Bear fruit, says John, in keeping with repentance. That's it, you see. A repentant heart, according to the Scripture, bears the fruit of repentance. Not worldly sorrow, but godly sorrow, Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 7. Godly sorrow, that is a godly hatred of sin and my own sin, 
that leads to repentance. This is very important. What we're hearing here is that a merely outward confession, a mere outward desire for baptism to be a member of a church will not do. Isn't it strange that John the Baptist doesn't say, woohoo, Pharisees, Sadducees, coming. Church is booming today. No, he says it's no good. It's no good to simply show up at John's baptism. The proof is in the life. A repentant life is known by its fruit. Well, what kind of fruit? Well, thankfully, in the other Gospels, uh, we learn a little more. Uh, John says a little more in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 3. Because you're thinking, well, what is this fruit in keeping with repentance that John thinks these uh, Pharisees and Sadducees should be showing? So Luke 3.10 goes like this, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Same message. And he answered them, well, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he, he didn't say to them, quit the force or quit the army. He said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. These are all, you see, examples of fruit. In keeping with repentance, you're not stealing from others, you're gracious to others, you're sharing your food with others, you're sharing uh, your resources uh, with others. This is all fruit of a, a repentant heart. And Luke 18, 9 to 14 certainly gives us instruction about what this repentance looks like. It's not the person, it's not the Pharisee who comes to God saying, Lord, I've done so much for you. Right? It is the uh, tax collector who says, Lord, have, have mercy on me, a sinner. He, he didn't even, the Bible says, you know that detail, he didn't even... He didn't even look up to heaven, but said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. So the fruit of repentance is humility of life. The fruit of repentance is lack of pride. This is what these Pharisees and Sadducees did not have. The fruit of repentance is not presuming upon God's grace, but a humble bowing before the God of all grace, knowing that we're not worthy of such grace at all. For I tell you, says John, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. That is, children of Abraham, he says to the Pharisees and Sadducees, are born, as the Apostle John would write, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, this is good news. This is good news. John tells us that uh, God can create children of Abraham from stones. Why is that good news? Because you're born with a heart of stone. And so am I. So this is good news. Because this is exactly what the Lord Jesus is going to do. And what he's done in your life. If you're a believer. This is gospel grace. You know what God can do, says John, to these folks? Praise God. He can make children from stones. Because unless he does, you and I will remain hard-hearted towards him. John's saying children of Abraham aren't born naturally. They don't come into being through the sinful nature of man, nor then they can be produced by an act of willpower. We're not saved by our own works or our own bloodlines, affiliations, or personality. We're saved, says John, by God's sovereign grace alone. And so don't come to God presuming that you need no repentance and that you're not a desperate sinner in need of grace like all the rest. Repentance, friends, is for the church today. 
Repentance was for the church of Ephesus. You think, well, that, wait a minute, that's, you know, John the Baptist, I mean, Jesus has come. We don't still need to repent, do we? Yes. Read the letters to the churches in, in Revelation. Repentance was for the church at Ephesus. Repent and return to your first love. Some people profess faith uh, in the Lord, and they've lost love for God. But they're going through all the ritual. The Bible says, repent, turn from that. Return to, to what drew you to the Christian faith in the first place, the beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ and, and all that God's done for you at the cross and in the resurrection. Repent. Repentance was for the church at Laodicea. Repent of your lukewarmness. Be either hot or cold, but don't be lukewarm because Almighty God will spit you out of His mouth. <sighs> Repent of that. We're dealing with the, the glorious, majestic truth of the gospel, says Revelation. How could we be... So we've considered those who are called to repent. All people everywhere, including God's covenant people. That's you and that's me. We've considered the sin of presumption, that is, presuming we do not need to repent. That is, that we don't need to turn. We don't need a Savior. We're righteous in ourselves. That's wrong, says the Bible. Don't ever presume that. We all need to turn from sin and in faith to Christ. But we also need to consider John's sober warning here that the Lord is coming, the King is on his way, the kingdom's at hand, and the King comes, yes, to save sinners from their sin, but he also comes as the mighty one, John says, mightier than I, uh, who will judge between good and bad trees and who will gather his wheat into the barn. But the trees which do not bear good fruit and the chaff he will throw into the unquenchable fire. These are sobering words. Verse 10. Even now, said John, the axe is laid to the root or in front of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff, will, he will burn with unquenchable fire. There are times, um, there are times as a pastor and a preacher when you particularly feel your own weakness to proclaim the truths of Scripture we are but clay vessels. Certainly when the glories of heaven are described in the book of Revelation, who has a tongue to proclaim the glory of the presence of the Lord, for instance, in all his fullness? No more tears, no more pain, no more death, no more sun, because the Lord God, the Bible says, will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, John says. The barn there simply means the place where things are put, um, the place where things are stored away safely. That's what that refers to. There's lots of beautiful language in the Bible about the wheat of God, 
The death of believers in Scripture is described in a very comforting manner. It's described as precious in the sight of the Lord as the death of his saints. Christian's death is described as being carried away by the angels into Abraham's bosom, like taken right in, old-time language. It's described as a going to paradise, a blessed departure, a being at home with the Lord again, better by far, falling asleep in the Lord, going to the house with many mansions, being welcomed into the very presence of Christ. Well, these are, these are glorious things. The hymn tries to capture some of the wonder of wheat being gathered into the barn. You, as a Christian, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful. My song shall ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. When with the ransomed in glory, his face at last I shall see, twill be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. So no, we can't, um, we can't capture that. What tongue can tell the glories of heaven? And likewise, what tongue can tell the miseries of hell? You know, Jesus spoke more of hell than of heaven. Jesus, of all the people in the Bible, spoke more of hell than any other person because he spoke the truth. It's Jesus who will speak later in the Gospel of Matthew of the final judgment and the separation of sheep from goats and the lack of evidence of true repentance and faith in this way. Then... He will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these, said Jesus, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, no one doubts from that passage, Matthew 25, that heaven is forever. That eternal life is forever. That eternal uh, life means life with no end. And says Jesus, whatever we understand about the finality, the eternality, and the ultimate destination of heaven for believers is equally true about the finality and eternality and ultimate destination of hell for unbelievers. Believers. Friends, this is why men and women and children are convicted by God to witness for Christ. This is why young and old are convicted to become a missionary. Why would you ever become a missionary? Because you believe that there is heaven and there is hell, and there is no heaven without faith in Jesus Christ. This is why men are convicted to become pastors. This is why church members like you and I know we have a mission and know that uh, though we have an outreach team, it is not a luxury but a necessity for the church. How then, said Paul, will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is what John says. Jesus is the king who comes to gather his wheat into the barn. John baptizes with water for repentance. But he who is coming, says John, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Sandals in Israel were filthy and dirty and sweaty and stinky. It was the job of a slave 
to remove sandals. And in fact, you might remember in John 13, removing sandals and cleaning feet is exactly what Jesus would do for his disciples. And John says, I'm not worthy to unfasten, remove, and carry away the most disgusting piece of clothing of the one to come. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit uh, and with fire. And what John's saying, this Jesus is the one with whom you have to do. Said J.C. Ryle, this again is the very teaching that human nature requires. We need to be sent direct to Christ. There's one mightier coming, says John. We're all ready to stop short of this, said Ryle. We want to rest in our union with the church, regular use of the sacraments, diligent attendance on an established ministry, coming to church. We ought to be told the absolute necessity of union with Christ himself by faith. He is the appointed fountain of mercy and grace and life and peace. We must each have personal dealings with him about our souls. What do we know of the Lord Jesus? What have we got from him? These are the questions on which our salvation hinges. He comes, says John, with a winnowing fork in his hand. Uh, Grain, wheat, would be separated from the chaff as it was uh, dug into on the threshing floor altogether, thrown up in the ground, and, uh, and the chaff would be blown away, and only the heavy kernels of wheat would fall uh, to the ground to be, to be gathered in. He will cut down trees with no good fruit, says John. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And friends, hear words fail us. We're out of our depths here. And while we dare not go beyond Scripture, we dare not say less than Scripture. The Bible says everlasting fire has been prepared for the devil and his angels. The Bible says there is judgment for sin. And either our sin is judged and punished in Jesus, or that sin will be judged and punished in us. This is the teaching of Scripture. You see why the cross is so important? There will be judgment. God is holy, and God is, God is righteous. And there will be. Uh, the king is coming. We need to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is, is at is at hand, and his wheat, uh, those stones, he's going to make them children of Abraham, he's going to gather his wheat into the barn, uh, all those who, who by his spirit will repent uh, and believe the gospel, but there will, be, there will be chaff who reject Christ, there will be chaff who, who reject any kind of sense that I don't need to repent, what do I need to repent of? There will be those who, who think Jesus is maybe a luxury, but not a necessity, as my only Savior And either we will be punished in Jesus for our sin at the cross, forgiven, or we will be punished ourselves for our sin with what Jesus and the rest of the apostles describe along with John as unquenchable fire, unbelievable uh, uh, horror that cannot be thought of. And again, words cannot express, but they're there. The book of Revelation speaks of smoke going up forever. 
We don't understand how this can be. We think of devils and we think of evil spirits. We think, well, they're not bodies. How can they suffer unquenchable fire forever? Well, somehow the Bible's saying there's, there's, there's a punishment awaiting that is un, unthinkable. But this is, from John, good news. You know why this is good news? Because in the Gospel of Luke, uh, as we hear from John the Baptist, notice how Luke describes this. John has uh, just given the same message we just heard, heard here in Matthew. And, um, and he has just warned them about Jesus to come. He's just actually spoken about the unquenchable fire in Luke 3, 17. And then Luke 3, 18 says this. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Uh, that is, so he, uh, you know, continuing along the line with all the exhortations he already gave, uh, he continued to preach uh, good news to the people. That is, the king is coming. Uh, he can make uh, children of Abraham out of stones, <laughs> and he is going to gather his wheat into the barn. This is good news. Now, today, of course, some would call John a hell and damnation preacher. But you know that he was given the name John by God. And you know what the name John means? It means the Lord is gracious. Because, friends, warning someone of everlasting death unless they repent and believe the gospel, unless they receive, accept, and rest on the coming king who is going to die in our place on the cross to be raised again for our justification and for our life, to warn someone of everlasting death which awaits when he is rejected and you don't think you need him. Oh boy, <laughs> that is the height of grace. If you're speeding towards a bridge that has collapsed, a road worker standing by the road with a stop sign telling you to turn back. Is that road worker wicked? Or is he gracious? Well, what if you told this road worker, come on. I mean, here I am having a nice, uh, a nice drive, minding my own business, and you want me to ruin my fun and turn around? You're wicked. You just want to spoil my fun. Well, friends, John is not spoiling anyone's fun. He is sent by the grace of God to prepare the people for the coming of the king, that they are to turn from their sin. They are to turn to this Savior uh, who is coming quickly, and his kingdom is at hand. And if you're thinking to yourself this evening, but wait a minute, how is this fair, that there would be wheat and chaff and God can raise up children of Abraham from the stones of the ground, why is he not merciful to all? Why doesn't he make children of Abraham out of, out of all the stones? And to that, friends, the Bible simply tells us that that's the wrong question. For we all, like sheep, the Bible says, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. The wages of sin is death. 
We're by nature children of wrath. We're by nature at enmity against God. We're by nature rebels and traitors to the king. And the Bible says the real question you need to ask is not, why does God not save all? The question is, why does God save any who are in rebellion against him? And the question is, not even why does God save any? The question is, why would God save you or I? And you know the answer to that question? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, that's the, that's the gospel. The king is coming. We need to repent, turn from our sin, no matter who we are, and turn in faith to the coming king. Maybe so. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word and for your grace to us. Oh, Lord, we confess our weakness Weakness to preach the truth faithfully. And Lord, our weakness to receive that truth in faith. Oh Lord, our world and culture hates this truth that we have just heard from the Scripture. The world in which we live hates the thought that Jesus, the King, Lord and Savior, is the only way of salvation. And Heavenly Father, though the world hates this truth, we're thankful that in the Scripture, in the Word of God, which will endure forever beyond every other culture, and this culture too, that that Word, above all powers, will remain. And that Word will always tell us that there is one King, there is one Lord, there is one Savior. His name is Jesus Christ, and we are called to repent and believe the gospel. Thank you for your grace to us tonight to remind us of how desperately, not just our neighbors, but how desperately we need the gospel, how desperately we need grace, that we might turn from our sin and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. May it be so for your glory and for our everlasting good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.